turn can't hear what these suckers say. I'm out here doing everything you suckers can't. To a million from some bands trying to bust the bank. Thank you for tuning in to Break Some Dishes podcast, where we talk with our guest of the day about some of the world's most pressing problems. We are breaking things up by looking outside traditional models, questioning ways we've always done things that are no longer working, and challenging business as usual. As designers, there are lots of things we could be doing better, and also stuff we're doing just plain wrong. We have to start really questioning our use of plastic, for example personally and how we design and specify it. And yes, we are talking about plastic again. It is just a problem that is having dire consequences and it's a pivotal moment for plastic in large part because fossil fuel companies are scrambling to find other ways to use their oil supplies as more conversion is made to solar and electric. We can't let these companies force more plastic upon us. We believe we can learn from our guests on how to take a stand, use design to make a difference, and be part of a major revolution that needs to happen now. Let's break some dishes. Hi, I'm Verda Alexander. And this is John Strasner. As we all know, the ocean is filling up with plastic at a rate that appears to be unstoppable. Fortunately, we have people like Dune Ives working on this problem. Dune is an eternal optimist and very smart person who cut her teeth in the corporate world and now brings to bear what she learned there into the world of ocean conservation. I got to know Dune through my work with the Next Wave Collaborative, and I'm so, so excited to be able to spend a few minutes chatting with her today. Dune started her career in corporate engagement and philanthropy. And while that may not sound like the qualifications you need to run a nonprofit to save the oceans, it actually serves her pretty well. We'll talk about that later. Today, she's going to break some dishes with Verda and me, and we're super ready. Everyone else ready to stop sucking and break some dishes? Welcome, Dune. Thank you so much for joining us today. So you've told this story so many times of the lonely whale who's who called to humanity at a frequency that we could hear. And I, I hate to ask you to tell it again, but maybe in your own words, you could share a little bit about that. And, um, and for those of you that don't know, Lonely Whale has their own podcast. They just started a podcast series themselves. And there is, the story is on their podcast called 52 Hertz. Yeah, the story of the Lonely Well is is really inspiring to a lot of people. It was to me when I first met Adrian Grenier, the co-founder of the Lonely Well Foundation. It's a story, I think, of hope. It's a story of isolation. And it's a story of community and connection. So as the story goes, there is this whale that swims the Pacific Ocean. He's thought to be between 35 and 40 years old. And he's been swimming the ocean his entire life, calling out at a frequency of 52 Hertz that no other whale has been known to call out um, before or since he was discovered. He was discovered, strangely enough as well, by um, U.S. Cold War era nuclear submarine recording devices. They captured the sound on their recorders and the, the Navy acoustic specialist had no idea what it was. It wasn't a submarine or a ship. And so they sent it to Woods Hole researchers who verified that, yeah, in fact, it's a whale. And and therein starts the story of this whale 
Adrian and Lucy, our co-founders, were so inspired by this story, they decided to do a documentary film. And they did a Kickstarter campaign to raise money for the film. Thousands of people, after hearing the story, asked, how do I get involved? Where do I get involved? What can I do to make a difference? And so Lucy and Adrian were so inspired by this response, they started Lonely Well with the intent to bind people to the ocean by binding them together and and leveraging the story of the whale to demonstrate that if we're going to save the ocean, we really need to be connected, one, to this whale. We can hear him, other whales can't. So are we spending the time needed to understand what he's trying to tell us about how hard we're all making his life. He's just trying to live a life fulfilled, but we keep making his ocean warmer, more acidic, louder with seismic blasting, filled with trash and plastic, right? So are we really going to listen to him? And in doing so, then can we create care for the ocean, but really care for each other? So that's really where the story of the lonely well starts for us. And, and we really took his call to us to heart and have been focused on learning, listening, and continuing to heed his call and doing everything we can to help people understand that one, that there's an ocean, two, there are real creatures like this lonely well that live in it, and three, it's our responsibility as people, as corporations, as policymakers to do what we can to make it a better place for him and for all sea creatures. That's a great story. I think something about storytelling and how it can really bring us together and 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 st- and get us started, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it you know, it really does come down to this idea that no one person, no one organization, no one corporation can solve for the ocean crisis. We need to listen intently and we need to work together and and we truly believe that's what this lonely well is saying is He's letting us know there's a problem and his call to us is for us to connect with each other in a way that he can't connect with other whales, but connect with each other so we can work together and really solve for not only the plastic pollution crises, but the other issues that are facing the ocean today. I believe you mentioned on another interview that for significant shifts to happen in the way we engage with the environment, that it will have to be led by corporations And you're a little unique in your organization in that rather than vilify them like other environmental groups might do, you actually choose to work with them and enlist their support. Talk about that a little. And also, what what might the individual do or what, what can they do? Do people working at an individual level really make any impact at all? Does it matter if I recycle, for example? If only we recycled more then we're missing an opportunity to affect change. If we just come at it and say, well, all corporations have to do is X, Y, and Z, then we're missing the opportunity for us as individuals to play a really important role and to feel powerful every single day. So those two really have to come together. And and I think come together in a way that aligns values. And and by that, I mean, and I think there's a lot of places where we can align. but I think we all hold the same things true. At least I hope we do. Democrats, Republicans, independents, corporations, individuals, NGOs, policymakers. We want a sustainable planet for our children to live on. And, and I think we can all agree that plastic doesn't belong in the ocean. You know, if there's nothing else we can agree on, I think those two things we can align on. And as an environmental NGO, 
as a leader of one with a very strong corporate background, I, I believe those two can coexist. NGOs and corporations can coexist. And when we work together, there's no, there's, there's no stopping us. There's no shortage of, of incredible change that we can affect. Is so well said, and I want to I want to go back because your background is actually in like corporate engagement and philanthropy, um, so you know you don't come at the problem like a typical environmentalist, and I think that it's it's awesome the way you embrace corporate support rather than blaming these companies for using too much plastic, and I think we do all agree. First of all, we do have oceans and they shouldn't have plastic in them. But you talk a little bit about behavior change versus market shifts. And I think when you when we look at the Lonely Whale Foundation and how you try to activate change, it's really like, you know, you've got your camp. It's really an interesting philosophy. And I'm, I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. That's a really complex question. Uh, so I'm no, a very a complex question. person, dude. With a complex answer. Complex. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do come from a long background of, of corporate engagement. One of my first jobs, I'm a psychologist by training. And one of my, well, my first job out of my PhD program was to work for Arthur Anderson, the, one of the big four accounting firms at the time. And... Uh, and from there, I went back into environmental work. And then I went back to work for Anderson. I worked out at Microsoft for a long time as a consultant. Um, and then when Enron happened and, and Anderson and Enron went down together, I left and decided that what I really wanted to do was focus on environmental conservation, but through the lens of corporate America. Yeah, and really, I really value the role that corporate America plays. There's, I think there's an important lesson for everybody to learn at some point in their lives. And that is that corporations exist for the sake of corporations. They don't exist for the sake of people within the corporations by their very structure. Not that they don't care, but corporations don't have feelings. People within the corporations have feelings. People within the corporations have needs and interests and wants and values. And corporations that are going to succeed through this environmental and social crisis that we have upon us right now are those that are truly paying attention to the needs and interests of the people that exist within the corporations that produce their products and their processes and and really continue to promote a growing economy. When you, I think, finally, as an individual, when I finally learned that lesson that corporations exist for themselves it really changed the way that I think about environmental work. So now when I approach a corporation to join us in one of our Lonely Well campaigns, I am constantly thinking about what their key performance indicators are. I'm constantly thinking about where they're heading in their profitability, their growth and development. And then how do we align our interests? How do we align our values with each other so that we can do something even more impactful together. Now, that's not to say that the economy should always continue to grow and expand and grow and expand. And that's what our focus needs to be on. But as someone who runs an environmental organization, I think it is really critical to understand that we have to focus on profitability. We really have to focus on uh, employee engagement. We really need to focus on shareholder value 
And we can do all those things with an environmental lens and we can actually achieve some pretty significant gains once we do that. If we just knock on the door from an environmental standpoint and we vilify corporations, we're losing the opportunity to really learn and expand and we're losing the opportunity to to really grow with each other. That's not to say that there isn't a role for those who do vilify. Oftentimes, those NGOs open up the door for us to work with corporations and for corporations to work with us. But, but I think we play a very specific role in really understanding what a corporation is trying to accomplish and then how do we align our environmental values within that so that we can find that thing that we can do together and together we can learn and grow and then we're both better off as a result of our experience. So do you look at corporate partnership as, um, I know you you mentioned you know, really needing to align with um, the corporations that you work with. Do you look at it as an opportunity if there's a, a corporation out there that is behaving badly and they are the source of, or at least one of the primary sources of a particular environmental problem, does that become a target for you, a potential corporate partner that you, you say, oh, we can... If we can turn these guys around, if we can, if we can teach them, then they become part of the solution and they're no longer part of the problem. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So okay. when we did our straw campaign, which is what most people know us for, is that Lonely Well straw campaign. When we started that straw campaign, we were thinking, well, we were so young and nimble. <laughs> there were three of us at the time. We had basically no money. And, and so we were, we were really scrappy and we were trying to figure out like, what are the ways that we can gain the most traction the most quickly to have the most impact on the least amount of money possible. And so we knew the straw was going to be a really important kind of token item for us to engage people on. You can be powerful every day by just using your mouth for drinking without a straw, um, unless you need a straw. And there is a, <laughs> you know, a really important population in America and around the world that needs a straw to drink. So mm-hmm. outside of that, if you're not one of those people, you can probably just use your mouth. Um, <laughs> so there was no alternative needed, right? There was no, we didn't have yeah. to have a sustainable alternative in the marketplace. So that made it possible for us to move forward with that campaign. And then we also, we were looking around and trying to identify like how do you make the most impact? And at the time, Starbucks used their trademark green colored straw in almost every single marketing campaign that they had. In fact, that straw, they did a lot of market research around it. They did a lot of market development. And there was a reason why that straw was shown in every single one of their drinks in every marketing campaign. In fact, there was one where there was a gif where there was a woman with a pineapple on her head and straws, straws, green straws were shooting out of the pineapple as she spun around. Um, <laughs> so we were like, well, that's fascinating. Um, their growth plan was to move, was to open a new store every 15 hours in Southeast Asia and other parts of the world where there was no infrastructure for waste management, collection, and recycling. And so we thought, okay, if we can affect change with Starbucks, then we can send a signal to the marketplace, to the supply chain, that change is upon us and we should start paying attention to this. So that's really why we did our Astralis in Seattle campaign. Hmm. It was very intentionally, strategically focused on shifting 
Starbucks. And so we surrounded Starbucks with love. You know, we had the stadiums, we had the Space Needle, we had the airport, we had the port, we had notable James Beard award-winning chefs, we had influencers. Heck, we even had Russell Wilson, our, you know, hometown hero, Seattle Seahawks quarterback who had just won the Super Bowl. And and we had all these players and then the city of Seattle decided to lift the exclusion to its policy around straws and plastic utensils, plastic straws and utensils, all really with the intent, John, to shift Starbucks. Hmm. So we knew that Starbucks had an opportunity to become a hero or the villain in the story. (laughs) And (laughs) turns out they were the villain because they weren't able to move as we wanted them to. We worked with them for about nine months and held off other organizations from campaigning against them. But then when they told us they weren't going to participate in the campaign, the other organizations had no reason to hold back and they became the villain in the story. And their change was enforced at a shareholders meeting, um, the next shareholders meeting, where they made an announcement they were going to shift their supply. So it's a great opportunity, I think, for brands to be hero brands. We all want a hero brand. But you need to have will of leadership. And what we learned there too is you need to have supply. Without supply, it's hard for big brands to change. Yeah. Yeah. We learned a little bit of that from Oliver when we talked with Oliver Campbell, trying to scale up with this stuff. That's right. And the straws, why do you think they were so persistent on hanging on to their straws? Oh, I think, I, you know, as a psychologist, I'll answer that by saying people hate change, <laughs> just in general. We don't like change. And, and when change is forced upon us, then we try to hold on to what we know simply because we don't like being told, especially in the States, we're so individualistic. We don't like being told what to do. So our campaign was always voluntary. It was intended to be voluntary, which was choose to stop sucking or you can just keep sucking. It's, it's your choice. <laughs> you either suck or you don't. They're like it's black and white. It's like, yes or no. Do you suck or do you not suck? <laughs> when policy change started, it, you know, people then came out of the world work. I was interviewed on Tucker Carlson. Um, why does Tucker Carlson care about straws? He doesn't care about straws. Tucker Carlson cares about being told what to do. And, and so I think that's really what it came down to, right? Is like, no one wants to be told what to do. And so you hold on to your straw. You probably saw the meme of the woman who was holding onto her AK-47 and her straw, her plastic straw. <laughs> that was my favorite meme. Then I was like, oh, we touched a cord. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That'll do it. That'll do it for sure. There needs to be a constitutional amendment to allow people to hold on to their straws, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Hold your straw, wear your mask, one of the two. That's exactly right. Do something, just do something. (laughs) John tells me that you're involved with Next Wave. Yes, yes. So Next Wave Plastics is an initiative that we dreamt up with Dell Computers at the time. And it came out of this conversation that Adrian Grenier, our co-founder, had with the team at Dell when he became their first social good advocate and he, he asked them, you know, can Dell join me in solving for what is a particularly devastating growing crisis of ocean plastic pollution? So that then launched Dell into about an 18-month journey to determine, can they, can they collect ocean-bound plastic, 
can they integrate it into their products and then can they scale that supply chain? The answer to all those questions were yes, but what they also learned along the way is that this is a gigantic problem and one company working by themselves cannot affect change in the system. We need more companies working together so we can learn, we can grow, we can share the burden and we can also share the opportunity to really tackle this problem head on. So in 2017... We launched with Dell and nine other corporations, including HumanScale at the time, which is how John and I met through an introduction made by Boreo. Um, we launched Nextway Plastics. And the goal of Nextway Plastic is to create the first global network of ocean-bound plastic suppliers. Currently, we source from 18 different suppliers across nine countries. We just added our 11th company, um, CPI Card Group, which is integrating one ton of ocean-bound plastic from Haiti into what it calls its second wave. It's a component within their credit cards and debit cards that they manufacture that integrates ocean-bound plastic. And so we're well on our way to achieving our, our total goal of 25,000 tons of plastic once bound for the ocean permanently removed from the waste stream and integrated into products. So we we often joke of you know, how amazing would it be to find a human scale chair or a Herman Miller couch on the beach somewhere that you could just take and bring back home. <laughs> but the reality is nobody throws these incredibly valued products in the ocean or the beach or in a river. So integrating material that was once in the ocean or bound for the ocean into those products ensures that we can keep that plastic in the economy and out of the ocean. So it's been a very exciting collaborative across multiple industries. And then within industries, we have competitors working with each other as well. And it's one of the only initiatives out there still today that is stopping the flow of plastic into the ocean. Wow. That's, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Because what Oliver was saying was, you know, before you start bailing out a tub that's overflowing in water, you got to turn the spigot off first. And so, you know, this whole ocean bound plastic, it's a design problem. Plastic, plastic was never designed to be part of the circular economy. And for us to think that it's a recycling problem or it's a landfill problem is, is misguided, right? Yeah, I can't believe we, we use, consume a million water bottles a minute around the world. I think that's the statistic. It's crazy. Even today? Even today we do? More. Well, More today. Yeah. That was a statistic from a few years ago. Yeah. And, and we're, what we're seeing, so we're doing a lot of polling right now to understand people's relationship to single-use plastics before, during, and then self-report. It's all self-report behavior, but um, post-COVID, what they anticipate. And with plastic water bottles, what we've seen is because people aren't traveling, they've decreased their consumption by about 45%. Wow. Um, which is amazing. Oh, I love the COVID-19. Oh, <laughs> finally but good on, news. on other items... Um, we're actually seeing more entrenched behaviors being created around things like thin film, like saran wrap and baggies for sandwiches because we're storing more things now in our homes. So I would say, you know, we have a lot to learn from COVID. Yeah, we're, we're consuming more and more single-use plastics. Horrible stats to share with you. Every month during COVID, it's estimated that globally we're producing 129 billion with a B. Um, disposable masks and 29 billion with a B gloves every uh, month. None of these can be recycled. 
So first and foremost, like I think what Next Wave is doing is insanely amazing. It's incredible these companies that are not producing packaging that is making its way into the ocean. Let's be really clear about this. These are not companies that are responsible for the vast majority of material going into the ocean, but they're out there and they are doing the work and they are learning and they are working with each other and they are growing and expanding. And what's exciting about that for me is that it shows that there is a way, there is a will, there are leaders out there who are doing it. But if we're going to make a real significant change, we need petrochemical industry to stop producing plastic, Mm -hmm. virgin plastic. If you continue to produce at the same level or more, and we still can't recycle the material, it's only going to exacerbate the crisis. So we have to start decreasing our reliance on single-use, non-essential plastics right now, if we're going to make a difference. My worry, though, is that the oil industry, the the less demand for oil for cars, the more they're going to push for plastics to make more plastics. Is the sense that I'm getting. It was Peter Drucker that said, innovate or die, right? And so I think what is an opportunity in the oil and gas and petrochem industries right now is innovate or die. They're, they're losing on the automobile front. We're seeing more renewable energy that is decreasing our reliance on natural gas um, and oil. And now with plastics, there's so much consumer uprising and so much evidence that this plastic is, is really a, a crime against humanity from these, these industries that they have a choice to make. They have a choice to diversify their portfolios, stop producing things that kill the planet, and start producing things that are beneficial. I firmly believe they can do it. They're really smart people who work at their companies. It just really takes the will of leadership to make it happen. Again, it's people not wanting to change, right? Corporations not wanting to change. Until that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Until their shareholders demand something different. You're talking about water bottles, right? Tell us a little bit about the uh, Hydrate Like a Mother campaign <laughs> and how that's that going. I love it. Hydrate <laughs> yeah. Like a Mother. Great name. Hydrate Like a Mother. My daughter always and, says, isn't there another word that goes under that? <laughs> after that? Yeah. Yeah. Trucker. Yeah, right. it's trucker. Tell it's your trucker. daughter it's a mother trucker. It's a mother trucker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Hydrate Like a Mother campaign. When we ended the straw campaign, we were asked if we could do for the water bottle what we did for the straw. So we began about a year and a half worth of research into what is up with that single-use plastic water bottle anyways. And we learned there are 500 billion produced every year, bottles every year, that at most we're recycling about 30% of all the bottles produce on an annual basis. And the growth of the single-use plastic water bottle industry was on the upward trajectory and with no end in sight. In 2017, 26% of all new virgin PET polymers, so from oil and gas and petrochem, were produced for the growth of the single-use plastic water bottle industry. So tremendous opportunity to affect change So we designed this campaign that was multifaceted, that raised awareness about the issue, but also importantly brought forward a new alternative to single-use plastic bottles. In the campaign, we had our our front-facing plastic service announcement, we call it, that featured both Aquaman, so Adrian, who was Aquaman on Entourage, and then Jason Momoa, who is Aquaman, and Diplo, and a a whole host of other characters. And that was really well received. It was, um, it went pretty far and wide. 
we also had a museum of plastic in New York City that grounded that PSA in uh, an in real life experience where people could really learn about the issue and and talk with each other. And then importantly, we also brought to market a brand new type of canned water, and that was canned in an aluminum screw top can. Aluminum is infinitely recyclable. And we heard from a lot of corporations that consumers don't want to drink water out of a can. Well, it turns out that's not true. At the same time, Jason Momoa was bringing his own brand of canned water to market called Mana Nalu. And so it was really the trifecta, the plastic service announcement, the new brand of canned water, and then also the Museum of Plastic that allowed us to be able to make some significant inroads. And Pepsi and Coke announced shortly after we launched our campaigns that they were transitioning away from plastic for canned water, for water, and into an aluminum can. Wow. That's really cool. So very exciting progress. Now you've piqued my interest with this museum of plastic because I am an interior designer and I can start to imagine it. It sounds like a really amazing place, but probably closed right now. Are you, what's, what's the plan for the Museum of Plastic? And can you describe it a little bit? Yeah, when we did the Museum of Plastic last year, I can't believe it's only been a year. It feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was actually just a one-week installation. Um, turns out they're very expensive to produce. <laughs> and we wanted it to be free mm. to the public. So it was a one-week installation in Soho and Broadway during World Ocean Week. And it was wonderful. We had a number of rooms in the Museum of Plastic that told you about the story of plastic, the impact single-use plastics have had, but importantly also showed you what a better world looks like. And it highlighted brands like Ever and Ever, the canned water we helped bring to market with AMI, Swell, which has you know one of the best uh, reusable water bottles on the planet, and then also HP who had at that point produced the world's first monitor utilizing ocean-bound plastic in 16 of its components. And so we brought oh, all wow. of those together in the Museum of Plastic. It was visited by over 10,000 people across the first five days. We had the head of the UN president of the General Assembly came and addressed the group. And, and it was just a really wonderful place to come and experience hope. And inspiration. We then repeated it at Art Basel in Miami in December at the Edition Hotel. We had the designer Aaron Preston um, also there with the mayor of Miami Beach talking about their innovations and policy change. So it's been really well received. This year, we were intended to have three museums of plastic all over the world, London, LA, and then a location in Asia. Um, but of course, with COVID, everything got shelved. Um, so happy to share any assets with you about what the experience was like. It was a really wonderful experience. And it really, I think it just gave people time to learn and time to talk. Yeah. And with an issue as big as plastic, also as solvable as plastic, that's what we find people need more than anything is they just need time with each other. Yeah. I think you need to be poised and ready when things reopen to have, get those museums online. Those sound amazing. I want to know, Dune, if you have a moonshot. Dell's got a moonshot. Does Lonely Whale have a moonshot or do you have a moonshot? So my moonshot, my moonshot is when my child is old enough to learn how to dive. So that's just a few years from now, three, four years from now, I can find a coral reef that is free from plastic pollution. That's my moonshot. Oh, okay. 
That's great. And, and I know it's not a quantifiable, but it's, it's a really tangible thing for us. You know, we were all so fortunate to be able to grow up swimming in rivers and lakes and in the ocean where we didn't get smacked in the leg by a chip bag. Uh, <laughs> I had that experience. <laughs> one time and I'm like, what is that? I'm terrified of water. And so I thought for sure I was going down. That was it. It was a gigantic <laughs> fish that was going to take me down. No, it was a chip bag. Uh, and it was, it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're okay. Good God. I, I was traumatized for like 10 years after that, to be honest with you. <laughs> and you don't want to vilify the company responsible for, so you're not going to tell us what, was it a no, ruffle? No, was it a laze? No. I, I almost said it, but no, I won't, I won't say that. <laughs> but it was terrifying. It was this gigantic fish in the shape of a chip bag. And that really is my moonshot. My moonshot is I want my child to the idea that he has at the age of six about the way the world works, I want that to be a reality for him when he's 10. And, and that's why we push so hard at Lonely Well. That's why I push so hard. That's, that's why we will stay on this issue of plastics until we solve for it. And, and we'll do everything we can from this point forward to make it work. That's really great. So we always ask a design question since John and I both come from that industry and I'm an artist and a designer and I know you've used design in these campaigns quite extensively, I'm sure, and designing that museum. And, is, and design can definitively impact lives. But personally, as designers, I think we can be a little timid and timid in how we exercise that power. And I, like John said earlier, I've been trying to challenge my fellow designers. What advice would you give to get more active and engaged and to use design to help enact change? I think designers have a skill set that most of us wish we had, which was, which is to be able to design. <laughs> I, it's such a gift and, and most of us don't have it. So there's two opportunities, I think, for designers. One is if you don't feel personally confident that you know how to design the future or with the future in mind, call me. <laughs> I'll, give you, I'll give you 500 bad ideas and maybe one of them will be a good idea. But I think it's, it's matching yourselves up with people who are, they, they have, they see the path, they have the intent, they know what is possible, but they actually can't put it into practice. So, so let's work together on this. I, I saw something recently come out about clothing that is now designed to suck up CO2 from the atmosphere. So as you wear it, it pulls it in. I remember a conversation five years ago I had with a gentleman who I just think the world of, who is a phenomenal human. And uh, we were talking about this baby blanket that was designed where um, you could put it on top of a carriage. And as you're pushing your child around a city, it could identify poor quality of air. And I was like, that'd be amazing. But what if it also changed colors and it could tell you that there's a lot of CO2 and it sucked that CO2 up too. Oh my you God, know, so you I, just pivoted your campaign from stop sucking to start sucking. To start sucking, start sucking up that CO2. <laughs> so I, that I, I think just reach out to people and see if you could lend your design skills to people who don't have the same capability. So that would be one offer and, and I think opportunity. I, I think the other thing too that I've experienced with designers, and I don't mean to stereotype, but I think designers love perfection. And in the environmental space, I've long held the belief that you should not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And so I think in a way, like let yourself off the hook a little bit. Don't worry about getting it so perfect. 
let it be a little bit messy because innovation is messy. And if we wait until things are perfect, we'll never change anything. So, you know, let yourself off the hook, allow yourself to breathe a little bit and call me or or call others like me that probably have a million design ideas, but nowhere to put them because we can't design ourselves out of a paper bag. Let me give everybody your cell number real quick. Do it. <laughs> and don't, don't DM me on Instagram. <laughs> I, mean, that is I don't so know how to respond. You're so right about the perfection thing. I think it's this idea of fear of failure and you just got to keep on trying. And that's right. Get it right. Yeah. yeah thank yeah. you for that advice. And yeah, I, I will call you. <laughs> Suck early and often. That's what it takes. <laughs> Dune, thank you for breaking dishes, man. You were a dish-breaking badass, and we appreciate your time. It's awesome to be able to reconnect with you. I, I miss you a lot. I miss everybody uh, that we were running around with there. And hopefully we can start running around again together soon. This is a stupid pandemic. This is a great Let's- conversation. Thank you, Dan. Well, you're welcome. It was really a pleasure to be on with both of you. John, I miss you as well. I just want to wear red pants every once in a while. I know, so I, and you I should, like by I'm God. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you some selfies. But That's I do great. want a T-shirt. I want a Breaking Dishes T-shirt. So oh, uh, well, let me know right. when. Um, let me know when I can well, order that. Thanks to Verda and her talented team, we we do have a really cool logo. So that will make some cool T-shirts. Oh yeah. Sure. We'll have a t-shirt. That's a great idea. That's going to be a special treat to our guests as they get limited edition breaks some dishes t-shirts. I can silk screen them myself. Oh Oh my God. Handcrafted. (laughs) All right, dude. We're already working together. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Let's do it. All right. Well, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you so much. Really a pleasure, you guys. Thank you for having me. Good luck, dude. Thanks again. We'll catch you later.